Welcome to the Manuscript Academy podcast, brought to you by a writer and an agent who both believe that education is key. The beauty is the people you meet along the way, and that community makes all the difference. Here at the Manuscript Academy, you can learn the skills, make the connections, and have access to experts all from home. I'm Julie Kingsley. And I'm Jessica Zinsheimer. Put down your pens, pause your word counts, and enjoy. Oh my gosh, I am so excited. We have a very special guest here today. We have J.B. Harris. Her debut novel, The Immigrant's Wife, was released in May 2023. Welcome, J.B. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. So we first met you, I believe, one night in Boston. Julie and I were in Boston for a couple of days and we're like, you know what we should do? We should see who is here and we should hang out with them. I remember that was really fun. We found one of those places with like, they've got the cute like neon sign that spells out some kind of paragraph. And of course they put it over (laughs) like tropical foliage. And yeah, that was just, it was, I thought that was brave. You're like, yeah, I know these people on the internet. Sure, let's meet in person. No one got murdered. It was great. For me, it was awesome. And to meet a bunch of writers that were part of the Manuscript Academy and to chat and hang out and have you guys take a look at, you know, an earlier draft of The Immigrant's Wife and and talk about, I think we talked about first paragraphs and it was really helpful, really awesome. So tell us, tell us about your publishing journey. You have a debut out, like we want to hear all about it. Okay. Well, I, it is out. The Immigrant's Wife came out in May. It's been, it's been an amazing journey. It's been a long journey and it has a lot of facets to it. I started the book 11 years ago. And I think at that time I had, let me do the math. I had a seven-year-old, four-year-old and a three-year-old. And so it took 11 years. You know, if you, if you look at the time I started it to the time I ended it, But if you counted hours, I think it would be less because back then I was working three hours on Tuesday afternoons when I had a babysitter who could watch the kids. I've thought about this. Do you have like mom guilt around how long it took? Because you're you're also raising, like you're creating a world, but you're also creating a world for these littles. And I, I think a lot of parents are like, oh, wow, that took a long time. But parenting takes so much time. I don't have much guilt at all. You know, I heard things from other people every once in a while, some criticisms. But again, it was like I was taking three hours a week, you know, and if they needed me, obviously, I didn't say, oh, I'm sorry. Well, you know, you just fell down and, you know, broken arm. I'm going to just stay here writing. But one of the best payoffs for me was about, I don't know, maybe five years ago. So they were still young. They weren't teenagers yet. And I had entered the contest to go to, I don't even know where, but it was some contest. I think Breadloaf was hosting it. And I think I could go to France for three weeks. Wow. And they, yeah, I didn't win, but they were so little that I did have guilt about that's a long time to go away and work on a book. And, and my daughter who, you know, was in grammar school at the time said, no, mom, you have to go. It teaches oh. us to go after our dreams. Oh, God. I love that. I get the chills. That's the cutest. Yeah. So I didn't get to go, but it was it was a better payoff to have, you know, the children saying this is, you know, teaching us something. And in fact, I think it was even the same year, my son had to write a sixth grade collection of short stories and they wrote a dedication. And at the beginning, he dedicated it to his mom, the writer, for teaching him how to write. Right. That's amazing. Yeah. Especially really since sweet. back then I it was just more, you know, I was working on it, but I hadn't been published, not on my novel, my short fiction head, but I was kind of like, you know, all the writers, we all get into that imposter syndrome. Am I really a writer? And here's my son putting it down. So it's kind of nice. 
That is nice. And th there are a lot of people out there who are moms, are parents, have kids around, have other obligations to their family. Do you have any tips for talking to them about your work other than I'm going to go in this room and don't knock on the door unless you're bleeding? <laughs> That's a good one, though. I do have that tip. There is a there is a text to my family that it says that. I think it really boils down to if writing is a passion for you or anything that's a passion for you, you have to fill your life with some of your passions as well, or you can't be a good mom and a good wife and a good partner and a good daughter. And, you know, you have to be able to do what refreshes you, what rejuvenates you in order to do that. For me, I had to get a babysitter. I had to carve out time. It still to this day is on my calendar when I'm writing, when I'm working on, you know, publicity, when I'm getting to go to the gym, you know, it's all written down on my calendar so that I treat it as a job because that's what I want it to be. Such a great conversation for the, you know, the writers out there that are parents that are kind of struggling with imbalance. And, and it always is like, there's always going to be something that you can put in front of your writing, but when you turn it into something that has priority, like your family's priority, but then in this hour, I have this hour, I'm going to do this. I'm not going to scrub the floor. I'm not going to, I am going to work on, you know, the second iteration of me and, and this passion I have. So can you read to us from The Immigrant's Wife? I absolutely can. The book is told in dual point of view. So the very first page is from Anna's point of view. Anna's heart jolted when the brass knocker banged against the front door. The treadle sewing machine her sister had been using stopped, but Anna's heartbeat raced on. Jesse shot her a conspiratorial glance unnoticed by their father as he snapped and folded away the Sunday business section. In preparation for this introduction, Anna had trumpeted Charles' attributes for weeks, but deliberately omitted the obvious. Now that he was here and the truth would come out, she wanted to catapult from her seat in the parlor and send him away. Unfortunately, her mother had already answered the door. Anna tucked the suffrage article she'd been furiously reading out of sight, not wanting to give her parents any further cause to question her judgment. Tinker, their Jack Russell, barked. Anna swooped him onto her lap to keep him from being a nuisance. She petted him to calm them both, her hands trembling as Charles appeared in the doorway. Anna locked on Charles' twinkling espresso eyes, her face transformed into permagrin, a term Jesse had coined to describe the mile that, that consumed Anna's face whenever she talked about him. Charles donned a freshly pressed white shirt, a slightly too large jacket, and worn but recently shined shoes. Anna thought him incredibly handsome, but he seemed out of place in the entryway, surrounded by new wallpaper, electric lighting, and the gleam of the polished to a shine grandfather clock. Charles crossed the threshold, extending a modest bouquet and a hopeful smile to Mrs. McIntosh, who shifted her squat form aside to let him in. Constantinos Petrinos, he said, introducing himself with his given name. I like how there are all these little details about time period here. We were on a live class. I was a couple just weeks ago. thinking this. I was thinking the exact same thing. <laughs> and someone put in the chat, what if you show the time period by women's clothing? And you didn't do that. But there are little touches of clothing. There is the sewing machine that is not electric. There are all these beautiful little details that just kind of gently tip us off without being like, hey, reader, guess when we are. Can you talk about how you created a sense of time, a sense of place, all the research you did there? I was going to say it's a research black hole, right? Whenever you start to look things up, you can lose yourself for hours. Mm -hmm. But that's what you have to do. I mean, I started with them in their house. 
I did research, called up pictures of what a middle-class house in Boston at, you know, 1910 to 1920 would look like. I researched clothes. I researched language by a couple of things, reading some books written, then reading some other books about that period, watching some movies about that period. And then it's just a matter of what organically goes in the story. I think in the beginning, I probably forced a lot of things that don't, but I learned along the way that you have to look at the world through the eyes of the main character at the time and notice what they would notice. So describing his clothing and, you know, the fact that they're shined but scuffed a little, that's something that Anna might notice. Certainly her parents noticed, but it might not be something that another character would have noticed if we were getting it from their point of view. One thing that is interesting as you're talking about this is that 1910s Boston, you could probably find buildings from that time within walking distance of you at this point. Did did you go look at them and you're like, hey, somebody from this time looked at <laughs> just that? <laughs> I did. Um, I actually went into Boston to find exactly where they would have lived. Unfortunately, the West End of Boston has basically been obliterated. Yeah, in the 60s, they decided to gentrify it and they changed it and they moved everybody out and they moved a lot of government buildings in. So it was one of those searching for a street that doesn't exist anymore. I was fortunate enough to go into the West End Museum and I was able to see what things would have looked like. And I asked them for what I wanted was like a three-story walk-up building and what would it look like and where would it have been? And there happened to be one still standing down the street. It was like one of the only ones. So they said, oh, you want to go look at that? And I did. I'm standing in the middle of like almost like a highway. And uh, there's this one building kind of in the middle between two big streets and I'm looking at it and I'm, I tried to get in, but it was locked. But it was, I was like, did you knock it? I did. But no one was there. <laughs> middle of the day. They were all working, I guess. That's so interesting. I had never considered it, but I bet there are a lot of writers who are in the predicament of trying to research a street that no longer exists. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it either till I was there. <laughs> I'm like, wait yeah. a minute, I have the map, you know, and it's yeah, not there when anymore. I was reviewing the book. I felt that that's what I felt like. It was like a slice of life in Boston over a hundred years ago that I just really haven't heard the history, like 1910 stories from Boston. There's not a whole lot of them. I mean, it definitely felt like it, it, it hit a piece of like the historical marketplace for me where you might know, you know, like the early settlement stuff and, you know, all the Revolutionary War and, and all of that. But, but this was a very different time. And I felt like there was such an interesting, there was some nods to the feminism with the suffragettes. But there is also kind of this really sweet love story, but it was based on a, a real story, right? Yes, you, yes, yes. Tell so, us how you, how you found out about the real story and, and why you decided to put this within your world. I will. Actually, I always call it my family history mystery. Mm -hmm. And I found out in my mid-20s that I was Greek. And Julie and Jessica can see me right now. I look Greek. And I grew up in a place that was half Italian, half Jewish. And everyone was always saying, are you Italian? And I would say no. And they'd say, what are you? And I'd say Irish, Scottish, and English. And they'd look at me like I had two heads. But my grandmother had grown up with a maiden name, Patrons. And when she moved out of her house and I was going through some of her things, I found a christening certificate that had Petrinos on it. And someone had taken, because back then they would have used oh. a fountain pen. 
someone took water and kind of watered out the eye. And so she didn't know that she was Greek because they raised her with having Americanized the name. But what led to the story was when she was in assisted living, she said to me one day, she said, you know, I remember sitting outside my grammar school and there was a man who used to watch me on the swings. And I always wondered if that was my dad. And I thought, wait, don't you know who your dad is? Because at that time, I thought I knew who my great grandfather was. And she said, no, my dad disappeared when I was two. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So she knew nothing about him. I started doing research and it was pre-internet. So it was go into Boston and go to the libraries kind of thing. And again, I, you know, at that point, I'm wondering, where did he go? Were they ever even really married? You know, is he alive? Is he dead? Are they divorced? What happened? And I was able to find enough information to compile into a book for my family and do sort of this is what I know. But it it wasn't full. It wasn't complete. And for a while, part of the 11 years is I tried to take that story and take this nonfiction, but make it creative nonfiction and fill in the blanks. And one day someone said to me, you need to decide what this wants to be. Creative nonfiction isn't really a thing. Now, I think it is. I've oh, heard that it disagree. is. disagree. Right. But the way I think what they were saying is for me, the book wasn't working, trying to make it mm. both fiction and nonfiction. So I wrote everything that I could that was true. I bound it for my father, who at the time had Alzheimer's, and I wanted him to be able to read it, which he was. And then once he had read it and all the truth was put down, it freed me up to just write this fictional story. And I did something sort of opposite what you normally see in books. My book has all the real names, all of those people. Those are their real names. It's just that what happened to them is completely fictionalized. Yeah, let's let's talk about that. So, and I was as I was reading it, I was trying to figure out like, okay, is this real? Is this real? Like, how was that transition for you? And what did it feel like to move into a creative space with people that have their real names? Well, it obviously took me a long time. I was benefited by the fact that I never met my great grandmother, or obviously my great grandfather, or really any of the characters in the book. So in the beginning, it was all about trying to stay true to what I had heard about them. But once I was able to satisfy that family need of here's what I wanted to give you for information, it really was, it was like a light bulb went on. It was now this, these are fictional characters. And yes, I have their names. And yes, I know where they lived. I had all that background information that you often have to come up with, but never makes it into the book. I had all of that at my service. And then I ran with the fictional part of it. So it was actually once I made the decision, it was a, a lot easier. So I have seen things go badly for memoir writers whose families are not happy about the memoir. This is a little different because, of course, it's fiction. But do you have any advice for writers out there who have to kind of navigate, not the politics exactly, but everybody's feelings when writing about something real? So, again, I didn't have to worry so much about it because most of the people in the novel are no longer with us. But there are people around who knew them. You know, the first thing I did was make sure everyone knew it was fictional. The second thing was I wrote all of those drafts without ever showing it to anyone in my family until it was done and ready to be sent out, like really ready. Not the first time I sent it out or the second or third, but really ready to be sent out. And by that point, you know, my father was gone. My mother, it's my paternal side. She really didn't mind. Most people just weren't that 
involved or invested. I think you do have a lot where people are invested. And my recommendation for that is that you need to let them maybe read it first before you send it out. I have done some autobiographical pieces about my husband's family, short stories. And I did feel at the point that the rest of the world was going to see it, that he needed to see it first and sort of give his stamp of approval of sending it out. That's interesting. It's almost like, what if Emily Post had written a book? Well, and she's Edwardian too, so perfect. What if she had written a book about the etiquette of writing about real people? I wonder what she would say. But I think checking it with that person probably helps. What else would be on that list? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, honestly, if you're making anything really negative about someone, try not to use, you know, try not to clue who it is exactly. I've heard other writers say that when they're using fictional names, people don't tend to identify themselves in the negative, only in the positive. So they don't usually say, how could you write that about me? Because they don't think it's them. So -hmm. if you have the ability to not use real names, I don't, I don't know if that's allowed in memoir, but if you're allowed to change the names to protect the innocent, that might be a good way to go about it, I think. And also just being true. I mean, if you can write understanding that your perspective is just that it's a perspective and that what happened on the other side might be perceived differently. And you can write so that you aren't putting your prejudices into it. Then I think that the story comes out a little more honest and perhaps less likely to shock or offend someone. Well, and perspective is so interesting too. Like you can be in a situation where you both report back to your friends exactly the same things were said, exactly the same things were done, and you both come away with completely different interpretations of what happened. And so it's it's just so interesting how you can have something like this. And as you are reporting truth in book form, yeah, it, it makes me wonder about what the other perspectives could be on the same occurrences too. That's really interesting. One thing that happened that was kind of interesting is before I got it published, I had done my own website and put up an excerpt and I got an email from a woman who said, I think your Jesse is my Jesse. And the woman was, yeah, the woman was in her, probably in her eighties or seventies. She would have been, I think she said the granddaughter of the Jesse character. I've never met the Jesse character. I know nothing about the Jesse character. I completely fictionalized her based on, you know, I knew she was Anna's sister. That's all I knew. And I found it really interesting that this woman who I've never met, who's a pe- I did find out later, she is family. It was her Jesse, was able to identify this character just by the situation I put her in with the people I put her around. I love that so much. I love that, you know, I think like, with the rise of genealogy and all of us kind of like just wondering, like there's so much to learn about how people learned lived in the past versus how we're living now, which is like this, this huge kind of change. And it's almost like just politically, we have a clash that you kind of like 1910 had it too, right? Did you find things that were, that were happening today were helping you with some of your themes? 
Yes and no. In in the sense that, you know, listening to so many of your podcasts, you always hear people say, don't write for the trends, don't write about what's going on. And I didn't at all. When I started this, I I mean, immigration has always been an issue. But um, 11 years ago, it wasn't such an issue. Exactly. Right? It's so really interesting how you hit it right on the nose there. Exactly. Wise. And I so I wrote the book and the themes for me, it was about telling the story of a man who didn't desert his family for a nefarious reason. And that's what generated me wanting to write the story. So that's what I did. And in there, you know, immigration comes up to make him sympathetic. You need to see what he went through. There's illness in the story. I won't guess, give it away, but it's it's enough to relate to what was going on with COVID. And none of these things were in my head when I was writing them. I will say as we get closer to the end, probably the second to last draft, people started mentioning to me, oh, you've got immigration in here. You want to make sure that that's something that people see and and can relate to and and the same with illness. So I did, you know, make sure that I described those issues more than I might have if they weren't also current issues. And I think it, I think the balance worked out well. Yeah, I agree. And, 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 when we look at this and we look at it from a marketing standpoint, I think that this is a really great time to be putting this book out there. And I see that you're just doing so much marketing. I looked on your website and I was like, wow, talk about like staying home for 11 years and then <laughs> busting out. Can you tell our listeners about your marketing plan and how it's going? Sure. I'd be happy to. I should probably start by telling the listeners that I did something a little different from what a lot of people do. And I published without an agent. The reason being because I tried to sell this to over a hundred agents and in many manuscript academy classes and podcasts, the big thing you hear is just keep going. Perseverance, don't give up. The difference between being published and not published is keep going. And so what I was getting toward the end was not so much, oh, you know, there's this part that's okay, but these things need help. By the time I was ready to publish and it was ready to be published, it was more that people were thinking they were going to have trouble selling it because we were at that time in the middle of COVID and they didn't think that the book was going to be escapism enough or happy enough. They thought people weren't ready to read that. I felt differently. (laughs) Not that I have the knowledge and selling it is different. You know, selling it as an agent, you're trying to sell it to the big five. Selling it as a writer, you're trying to sell it to an agent. You're trying to get people to read it. And I had a lot of people reading it for me, beta readers who were saying, I think they're wrong. I love this. So what I did with that was I was just about to put this in a drawer and say, okay, I've been working on book, another book, a second book. I'm going to put it in the drawer. But before I do, I looked up a list of publishers that at the time were accepting straight from writers. Mm -hmm. And I sent it to about 10 of them. And one of them accepted it, which is great. And I'm thrilled. I would probably go with an agent the next time because there's so much work to do. You know, you want to be a writer. You don't want to be everything else. But that brings to marketing. When you publish with a mid-sized press. I didn't self-publish. I published with a traditional press, but their publicity is pretty much limited to putting together a list and sending it out to bookstores. So in order to get your book read, I call it guerrilla marketing. You really have to go out there and pound the pavement. From what I've found, every single bookstore out there can order my book. 
but none of them have it on the shelves. And who walks into a bookstore and orders a book they've never heard of or never seen? So up until now, my focus has been mainly on trying to have some media acknowledgement, but also just knocking on doors or sending emails to, you know, all the local independent bookstores. That's where I start, but also Barnes and Noble, because now they're treated as sort of an independent. You can't, you know, get in touch with the Northeast Regional Barnes and Noble and have them carry every book. You have to go to the one in Hingham and the one in, you know, Freeport and the one, you know, here in New York and there in California. And that's what I've been trying to do is reach out to anywhere I'm going to be, anywhere I can get to and offer to do a signing. And that's been working pretty well. I mean, again, you know, probably nobody in California will have heard of this book when when this airs, but hopefully, you know, afterward they will have, and then they might go looking for it and they may find it in their local store. They may just order it. We have a lot of West Coast listeners, so I'm confident (laughs) that this will get the message there. Um, I am picturing you with a suitcase and a suit and a cardboard cutout of one of your characters, and you're going door to door like, hey, (laughs) check out this book. Can you tell us what it actually looks like and what the letter looks like when you pitch yourself to these places? So the first thing I did was write a press release, which can be really helpful if you know when your book is coming out and you get it out there like six months in advance. Not so helpful when you find out a week before it's getting published. So (laughs) that didn't do me much good. What I've done is really craft emails that talk about, you know, it's a little like a query letter. Here's what my book's about. Here's why I think it would work well in your store, you know, whether it's because I'm local or, you know, I recently went out to Colorado and, you know, the illness that happens in the book actually is part of the reason Colorado even exists. So I could say that, you know, this is something that's relative to you. I've told them a little bit about some of the readings that have sold out. And at the end of that, I've added, you know, the cover of the book. I've added contact information for my website, Twitter, Facebook, everything. And then I will follow up with them with a second email and then a phone call. If I'm somewhere local, I have some cards made up that say the immigrant's wife and then what, you know, the little, the two line blurb about what it's about. I'll go in. I'll, one of the things I often do is you go in and people want to help you. So I go in to see if they're already carrying my book. Most of the time they're not. Some will come over and say, can I help you? What are you looking for? And I'll say, well, I'm actually looking for the immigrant's wife. And they'll go and they'll say, I'm sorry, we don't carry it. Who's it by? And I'll say, well, actually it's by me. And I would love it if you'd be willing to carry it. And more often than not, they'll order a couple of uh, copies and bring it in. That's a nice soft launch. That's not like showing up on your cardboard character and you're like, hey, you know what your bookstore doesn't have and will fail without. (laughs) Right. And then of course, you if they're willing to take you on and and help you, you have to help them. So every single bookstore that says they'll carry my book, I say, let me know when it's in and I'll post something on social media thanking you and telling people where to get it. So, you know, I've got a lot of stores that, you know, will pop up and and say on a Tuesday, you know, there was one in Washington, D.C. last week, Pros and Politics, who brought in a couple of, yeah, so I thanked them, put that up there, you know, I, I try to help them while they're helping me. Well, I think a lot of writers forget that bookstores need writers, media outlets need stories. There's a lot you can offer these people so that it is a situation that helps both parties. Can you think about some other things authors can offer these people when asking for a favor? 
Well, one of the things I'm now going to focus on, because I want to get the second book done, and I, I know we don't send to agents in November and December, but I want I it mean, ready. you can. But... You can. I want to have it ready for the new year. So I, would, I don't want to do as much traveling and literally like knocking on the door and sitting down and making four hours of phone calls. I'm going to focus on book clubs right now. And what I've done is on my social media, I've offered people, you know, I've said, first of all, if you're willing to do a book club and I can get to you physically and it works, I will come and we can have a author discussion at your book. The second thing I've done is if we're not close enough, I'll do Zoom. And then the third thing is I like to send, you know, just a small little gift to the coordinator of the book group. Because again, when they're when they're recommending it for their book group, they're getting a handful of people who are buying your book. And then I've been very fortunate that the reception has been very positive. So a lot of people are like, I love this book. I can't wait to tell my you know aunt or my sister or my friend. And so I want to thank people who are helping spread the word. That's nice. And even like historical societies probably would be interested. And it's interesting because depending on what you're writing, you can think of all of these different groups of people who are your potential audience who you can reach in different ways. Oh, yeah. I first started by going to Greek fairs because of the Greek immigration in the background of the story. I wanted to be able to approach people who might find that interesting. And that was where I started and it, it went really well. And then you look into, like you said, historical societies, you know, maybe places that are focused on women's rights, people who want to talk about the different aspects. And one of the things I've learned is you do have to think about what is in your book that's relevant and to whom is it relevant and market differently to that person than you. You can't just say, I wrote a book, here it is, and please read it. Because there's so many books out there. You, you, people don't know what to read. You have to have a reason for approaching a particular group, I think. So I think it's really smart also to, of course, it is a big, beautiful story that is so much more than its component parts. But if you can look at a book and break it down into its meta text, we've got historical, we've got Greek, we've got all of these other elements that are clues to you for how you can market this specifically to that reader. Can you talk about how you spoke differently about your book to different potential audiences? Can I just say something, what was happening as you're talking about meta tags? She lights up, Jessica lights up and whatever she says, meta tags, glowing like meta tags. Well, no, I, I like it. I like it because it's, I mean, I don't know if that's even the appropriate way of well, saying no, it, but, but we you talk can, about you can it. about it in these beautiful parts. And of course, like the book is so much more complicated well, than yeah, that. But that's but... what's so perfect about it because you use these tags you use like at manuscript wish list can also be used for marketing. And and I know I'm making fun of you because you get kind of like a little glowy, but you know, <laughs> it's so true. And if you, if you look at that, it's like those threads are the threads for the life of the book, you know? Right, that, that's so true. I mean, and I did learn some of that from Manuscript Academy because when you're looking for agents, those of you who have listened in, you've heard, you know, to go to Manuscript Wishlist and use your tags for people to see who's looking for what. and you'd be amazed. Sometimes you think, well, nobody's going to be looking for, you know, a Greek book or nobody's going to be looking for a story from 1910, but they are, or they're looking for something to do with immigration other than what's going on today. And you can, you can approach that way. And that's the same yeah. thing I think with, with the marketing, as you said. Jessica. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, for example, if you see that someone is looking for historical novels and they also happen to like My Big Fat Greek Wedding, maybe that's someone who is a good fit. But just as you would go to an agent with, I see you are looking for 
Edwardian timepieces. I see you're looking for stories in Boston. I see you're looking for X, Y, and Z. That personalizes it right away to the agent. And you can kind of do that when you're marketing the book too. I see that you are interested in X, so you might like my book for the Y component. Absolutely. I mean, I lo- I'm i a big fan of book talk when they do, if you like this book, you'll like that book. Oh, I'm hoping yeah. that I'll be on there eventually. But I do yeah. that for people because you know, as a writer, I read a lot. And so if I read a book that I'm like, okay, this book is really popular, but this book isn't as popular and it's as good, you know, then I will put that out there so other people can get the chance to read it. I love that. So let's talk about now that you know you're Greek, how how are you owning this part of your own culture? Well, that's interesting. You know, from a personal perspective, when you're Greek, you learn very young. They have Greek school. They learn how to speak Greek. They learn, you know, the culture. They learn how to dance. They they learn how to cook. And I didn't have any of that, which I'm very saddened by. And as an adult, I'd like to have all of that. But again, there's the time component. Do I want to spend my time learning Greek or do I want to spend my time writing the second book? And so I've done a little. We actually had a family wedding last week and the other side was 100% Greek. So on my way, I, you know, I refreshed, I've learned a little bit of Greek along the way, just enough to say, hello, you know, th- how are you? Thank you for having me. That's Spanakopita. Baklava, that's the big one. Yeah. Spanakopita. 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 They're like, right this way. And then when I was like at the Greek fairs, they always have Greek dancing. And they do a class while they're teaching, you know, they have the exhibition and then they do a little join in. So I've done a couple of those. And so at the wedding, when they were doing the Greek dancing, I was able to do it without tripping over my feet. I'm not sure I did the oh. right steps, but I didn't trip over my feet. So I'm I, I'm very interested in the Greek aspect of my, you know, heritage, but writing, it w- I had to be careful because although I'm not appropriating somebody else's culture because I am Greek, I don't know anything about being Greek. And in the book, I also use, you know, a Greek American accent. So I ended up having sensitivity readers to help me with that, to make sure that I wasn't, you know, making someone sound, you know, uneducated or, you know, taking something that wasn't accurate and putting it in the book. I think that's a responsible, good choice. Yeah, just to be absolutely sure. So for authors out there who have sent to a lot of agents, it's not working. You're not getting any kind of messaging back that makes you think, oh, I just have to change this one thing or I just have to do that. What advice do you have for those going directly to a small press? Because small presses vary so much. Well, the first thing I would say is make sure it's ready. I mean, at every rendition of, I think it was my fifth drafts, I thought it was ready and it wasn't. The way I realized it finally was is when the agents I was sending to beta readers, editors were saying to me, you could publish this today, just it's going to be really hard to get it in with the big five. So once you know it's ready, once you're getting that kind of feedback, then I recommend looking at, you know, on the internet, but at sources that are respected and revered, you know, you poets and writers or manuscript academy, but look at those things and make sure you're dealing with someone that is reputable. If anybody's asking you to pay them as an independent traditional publisher, that is not a thing. Self-published, yes, hybrid published, yes. But if you're going with a smaller press or a medium-sized press, you shouldn't have to pay a penny for anything except possibly copies of your book if you want to you know, get some of your own. Also, you know, talk 
call someone, email someone, talk to someone who has books with them and find out what are they doing. You know, I have talked to a number of people who have done this with different presses. Some are, you know, I'm guerrilla marketing, which is fine, but some of them really were on their own and it was, it was hard. They weren't getting the editing help that they needed. They weren't getting, you know, because it was a very small press, which is fine if you know that's where you're going. Other people are with slightly bigger presses than I am, and they were able to get a little more marketing. They were able maybe to get a little bit more upfront help, a little bit more lead time, that sort of thing. So research, <laughs> do your research and talk to at least one or two people with that press so you know if they're happy. Because if they're not happy, if they wouldn't go back and publish their second book, you need to know why. Yeah, I think that's really important to reach out to the people who are working with them and not necessarily just the ones that they recommend you speak with, because they're going to be like, ah, this person's happy and happens to be my niece. Go talk to her. <laughs> so yeah, I think finding people they've published, you know, just sending them an email. Again, once you have an offer, don't do this just as you're in, in your initial research. But, you know, once you have an offer from them, I think it's completely normal to reach out to people who've worked with them and, and see how that's going. I also, again, this is just from my perspective, I think it makes sense I would do this, but I like to see if agents I know are working with a small press. Um, because we have everything from people who basically print at Kinko's to people and, and have frighteningly bad contracts. And we have presses that are basically functioning like a big five. They just happen to be smaller. And not saying that it needs to be a big five model to be good or successful. I've seen very different models do great, have huge promotion budgets, have really successful books and amazing editors. It's just that this is a space that can vary so, so much. So it's really important for people to do the research and get some help on the contract if they can. Yeah. And I should say that, that as soon as I got a contract, I contacted Manuscript Academy and I asked, you know, do you have someone that I could hire to take a look at this? Because there is the, you know, find an entertainment lawyer, but I you feel could. like, I feel like agents are, are probably as familiar as you need to be with a standard contract. And with Manuscript Academy, you can, you know, hire people to do a one page. So if that one page happens to be a contract and they're willing to do that, you know, that that was very helpful to find people who who knew what was industry standard. Right. Because if you're not in the industry, you don't know what's industry standard and you may think, oh, that's reasonable or it's not. Right. And then the vice versa is true. Yeah, I think it's really important, too, to realize that it's not always what's in the contract and on the page. Sometimes it's what's not in the contract that can get you. I saw a small press contract one time that did not have a publication clause. And so they theoretically could have held onto the book forever. Meanwhile, saying the author couldn't publish anything else until this book was published. So they could have tied up this author's entire career for $500. And it wasn't, it didn't spell that out. It didn't say we can hold up your whole career for this. It just didn't promise to publish at any particular time, if ever. Right. So, yeah, I mean, it, absolutely. I think any uh, person who's good at entertainment or IP contracts is helpful, but there's just some weird stuff with publishing contracts. Everything in our industry, we have to like reinvent it and do it differently and come up with weird things that you'll only know if you know the right person to ask. So <laughs> maybe it won't always be like that, but while we are in that kind of ecosystem, I think it's always really important to get someone to look over that contract, especially if it's, you know, maybe it's a brand new publisher. Maybe it's, maybe you got mixed reviews from the writers who are there. You want to know that at least contractually you are protected. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it is, I mean, I've heard more stories about people who have 
worked with smaller presses and had bad experience than positive. And I think the difference is they were just so excited to get published that they were like, okay, I'll sign. And you really do have to do your research on that end. And again, I, I still, my heart is still with agents and editors and people who have more experience than I do, but you do need to ask at the very least and, and find out who you're working with. I think the order you did this makes sense too, because if you were thinking, hey, it would be great to have an agent and a big five deal, but I'd also be happy with this incredible small press that really knows what they're doing. I think it generally makes sense to start with agents, see how that goes, and then work on the small presses. It's when you submit to both at the same time, things can get really confusing. <laughs> so let's go. You're maybe talking about your new book. Is it historical as well? Are you going contemporary? And how's it going? It's going really well. It's in the third draft, which is much further along than the third draft of the original one, because now I have a better idea of what I'm doing. It is also historical. It is, I like to call it Still Alice Meets Olive Kittredge. So it's a book about an octogenarian woman who is diagnosed with Alzheimer's. But because she was part of the eugenics movement in the 40s. She was forcibly sterilized and she has no family to help take care of her. Oh, that's so interesting Gosh. and sad and interesting. <laughs> well, it doesn't stay sad. She does end up being assigned a social worker who's in her 20s who thinks she has her whole life planned out and comes to find out that, you know, the best laid plans and all of that. And they end up working together and um, both learning a lot from that relationship. Did you get any pressure to set your books in time periods that are more often covered in literature? Actually, no. I think the fact that it's set in time periods that aren't. In fact, I had someone when I was setting, calling to ask about doing a signing. Actually, it might've been even a reading. They asked me, you know, what is it? I told them historical fiction. And then they asked me about it and I told them and they said, oh, thank God. We have had so much historical fiction around World War II. I am so ready for something for something that isn't World War II. Now, not oh. to say anything bad against, I, I love the books I've read about the time period of World War II, but I do think at some point things get saturated a little bit and people need a little bit of a break. And so I think one of the things that I've heard a lot is that people are really excited by the fact that it's a period of history they haven't read a lot about and that they're learning things they haven't read a lot about. Well, and yeah, so if, much was happening then too. And I don't I don't know why the Edwardian period isn't like a big deal because <laughs> so much was changing right then. Why why do we really need another regency when we could cover, you know, the beginning of women finally getting the vote? Not yeah. the beginning they were working for like decades, but they finally got the vote in 1920. So, I don't know. But, but don't you think it's like historical fiction has to I mean like I know they're saying the 80s is historical fiction, right? Like whatever. Okay. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, yeah. like, and I was just thinking as you were talking, I don't know if you've ever been here being a New England person, JB, um, but like Strawberry Bank, which is this, this historical kind of like museum and it has, it cuts down and you can walk through like all the layers of history. So it uses the architecture in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and it cuts down through all the different periods from like the late 1600s to the 50s. And I kind of remember being in the 1910 and like hearing about the immigration process and not even questioning it, like just being like, dum de dum And then there's World War, you know, one. And then there's like the depression. Like, and if I think about it, like, 
my great grandmother was born like in 1887 and lived until 1970. These people lived in this amazing period of change and steps in, in different worlds and everything else. And it's, it's like, I think it's almost like lost history. Like, I think that there's going to be more and more, you know, of this space because it's, 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 it's within our reach, but we just can't always touch it. I think it's, it's terrific. I think what you said is true. A part of it is that the people we know knew people who lived then, right? And so in a way that it's almost too close of a history for certain people to be writing about, it doesn't feel like history until you start looking at it exactly the way you did. Like, I mean, when I think about my grandmother, who, you know, it would be the child in the book, when the book starts, there's horses, there's dirt roads. And then my grandmother's life, she lived until... She saw, you know, we went, she went from horses to cars to planes. It's amazing to think about, you know, going from that phone on the wall to one you can carry with you everywhere you go. And, you know, and I tease my kids sometimes like, what? It's so amazing. We have this little machine that can answer that question for you. But if you think about it, there was a time, I think, I think I'm safe in saying when the three of us couldn't do that. You couldn't just go to your computer and Google something. Right. And you'd be driving all by yourself in a road somewhere and you'd be have a flat tire and you were just out of luck. <laughs> yep. Wait Even for some you... guy with a truck. <laughs> like, oh. <laughs> Even if you're home, you couldn't be like, hello, operator, what did people wear I in know, 1910? Right, hang right. up on you. <laughs> so interesting. So, so JP, what is your number one tip for writers? Keep going. Perseverance, just like you guys always say. I mean, at any point, I could have given up. And I really, I got to a little bit of a low point where I, you know, I was taught growing up, if you apply yourself, if you work really hard, you can be anything you want to be. And, you know, I went through graduate school, I could have done something different. And there was a time when I sat there and said, you know, I could have been a lawyer, I could have been, a, but that's not what I wanted to be. And so when I finally got this book published, it felt like everything came together. It was a weight off my shoulders. I, I no longer felt like maybe I'm wasting my life. I mean, you just, if if you love something, you just have to keep doing it. And if you keep writing and you don't just always sit in your own room and, and write by yourself, sometimes take a class. Sometimes, you know, I love Manuscript Academy because you can go on Zoom and learn things. And I did, I learned a lot of things. And there's a lot of ways to do that through writers groups, through Manuscript Academy, through MFA programs, but get out there and keep learning and keep having other people read it and keep taking advice and sit with it. And then what rings true, just keep going and make it better because eventually with practice and perseverance, you will get there. As you're talking about this, it makes me think of the fact that all of this takes time to absorb. You know, you can't learn everything in a day, even if you just have like 50 TVs playing all the information you need for 24. Like that just doesn't work. You need to incorporate it. You need to feel it. You need to like let this knowledge become part of you. You need to be out in the world and think, oh, that reminds me of X, Y, and Z. And then the neural pathways all connect together. It just takes time. And it's and it is this like almost organic process. You know, you can't grow tomatoes in two days, no matter how perfect you are with your garden and your light and your water. And I think there's a lot of pressure. Everyone feels like they should get tomatoes in two days or they're doing something wrong. So from start to finish, how long did it take for you to start writing and then get published? I started the very first draft with NaNoWriMo 
when I was turning 40. I'm, I'm a November baby. So, and I, it got published when I was 51. So start to finish 11 years. Happy birthday. Oh, happy Thank birthday. you. Thank you. <laughs> you know, and I just, I just want to say like, just going back to, I remember having conversations, conversations with you and you felt frustrated. Like, you know, that you were like, I just don't understand. I've been working, working, working on this. But it is really interesting once you go through all the different steps and kind of look back at it. Just like Jessica said, like each one of each layer of the Spanakopita <laughs> needs to be layered correctly. And until you have that perfect ratio of cheese and, you know, spinach and like the amazing like phyllo and like the right temperature and the right time. And I think as moms, just kind of once again, pulling it back, we want things because we feel like we're working hard and we want it. But sometimes like your kids are older. Now you have more time to explore and really be in this space of you are an author. So congratulations. Well Thank done, you. Perseverance. Thank you very much. I can't help but think that someday someone's going to do an 80s novel and they'll have been born and like now and we're going to read it and we're just going to cringe so very hard when they're like and there are these things called cassette tapes we're going to be like <laughs> no well i'll just i'll prepare myself for that now someday that is going to happen it is we are we are eventually going to be history whether we like it or not oof that is yes well for those of us in the process of making our history more interesting i think this is a I think this is a great thing for our writers to hear about because yes, this takes time. Yes, there are many ways to make this work. And I'm just, I'm glad you didn't give up and I'm glad you can show people that they shouldn't give up either. Thank you. And I, and I really believe that. I mean, the perseverance, when I first heard it, it was like, oh, so just keep going and you'll get there. Yes and no, because you're not just going. If you're going to continue to write, you're going to continue to learn. You're going to continue to hone. You're going to continue to you know, hone your craft and and become a better writer just by doing it more than once, right? So it's perseverance, but it's perseverance and education. Just keep going. Growing as a person too. Yes. Jennifer, is there one thing that's like the one happy anecdote or the one story you find yourself telling people a lot when they ask about your journey? That is another good question. I'm not sure it's as much of an anecdote. I mean, there's always the question that people ask you, what would you tell your younger self? And I would tell my younger self to write and make that my career younger, because I think with the time spent earlier, well, I was going to say with time spent earlier, I might have ended up where I was. But now I think, you know, 20 year old me couldn't have written this book either. And I just at 50, I'm turning 52 at 52 next week. All I can say is that it's been such an amazing journey and I feel like I've started something new with the publishing and it's, it's, I'm alive again and I'm, I'm excited again. I've got the second book going. I've got people asked enough questions about one of the characters in this first book that I've actually started a third book, which will be related to the first book. So it's just, it's just joyous to be where I am right now. Well, I hope you get to stay in that energy, which I think is a good creative energy, the joyousness versus the like, <laughs> oh, God, another, another agent, another publisher, another, you know, yeah, I think it's really important to stay in that energy of like, what next cool thing could happen. And they do, you just stick with it. And something, you know, comes from somewhere you never expected it to, or someone says something that, I mean, one of the things with this book that you reminded me of when I was revising it was that I did get to a point where I knew I couldn't do any more myself. 
And that's one of the reasons I wanted the agent so badly was because I just needed someone who could look at it and say, this is why it's not working. And I wasn't getting that. So I went to a really good friend who's a very good reader. And I said, I need you to read this for me. And I need you to tell me why it's not working or why it's not getting picked up because I don't believe it's this particular reason. And she actually encouraged me to change the structure a little bit. And once I did that, it all fell into place. It was just like, you know, that's amazing. Well, I hope everyone out there finds the one friend or the one piece of advice that makes everything fall into a place. Sometimes I think about how many books are just one Tetris piece away. You know, you get that one piece, suddenly there's the quick flash. It all, you know, falls down exactly as you want. Everything fits together and you win. So JP, where can we find you online? My web address is www.jbharrisbooks.com. And then all my social media is on there as well. But I'm at JB Harris Books for Facebook and Twitter. And I'm on, I'm on everything, but I focus most probably on Twitter and Facebook. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us and for providing hope to our to our writers out there who are hoping one day to um, be in your shoes and tell other writers to not give up. And thank you so much for having me. It's been amazing to be here, especially coming from being one of those listeners and hoping to one day be on the show. And finally, now I'm on the show. It's another way I feel like I've made it. So thank you so much for including me. That's so nice. It's so funny. It's so funny too. People are like, wait, I feel like I know you. And we're like, oh. I, I did. Thank you for, I did see mention us on the books, but we are, we always appreciate those shout outs. That was just really yeah. nice to see. Well, I'm telling you, you guys were instrumental. There was a, there's a lot for those of you who have listened, but have not joined the Manuscript Academy. There are so many classes and resources there. One of the best ones for me, I think was the, how to track your rejections. Oh. That's Jessica. That's where I finally went. The book is good enough. Mm-hmm. It is good enough. These aren't just rejections. They're telling me something. And and I learned that from, you know, that class on, on Manuscript Academy. So oh, that's the, the shout out is genuine. So people go <laughs> learn. <laughs> learn awesome. <laughs> oh, Jennifer, thank you so much. I'm thank so you. happy this worked out. I'm so happy you get to tell your story and make all of this happen for all the different readers out there and all of their meta tags and all of the writers who just need to keep going. Thank you so much. We are so glad that you joined us. And as always, we appreciate your feedback. Just head on over to the iTunes store and let us know what you think. It not only helps us make this podcast be the best it can be, but it also affects our ratings within the iTunes platform. We'd love to hear from you. If you're feeling brave and want to submit your page for our first pages podcast, you can send it to academy at manuscriptwishlist.com with first pages podcast in the subject line. We'd also just love to hear from you. And if you'd like to learn more about the Manuscript Academy and everything we have to offer, just jump on over to manuscriptacademy.com.